You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, March 3rd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And a special guest rogue this week, George Robb. George, welcome back, man. Hi, guys. Yay. George. It's been too long. It's been too long. Hello. It has been. It's always great to have you on the show. Oh, how nice. So I was down in Virginia earlier this week. That's why we're recording a little late. I was Uh invited to give a lecture at uh, NASA Langley Research Facility. It was awesomely cool. God. Did you see any secret stuff? They, yeah, they have a research facility at Langley. That's interesting. Yeah. I saw some not-so-secret stuff. They, well, they have a, a, little, a little air and space museum, which is which actually kind of nice. They had an Orion capsule there, so I got to see one oh, awesome. in real life. But then I also got like sort of the backdoor tour of the research facility. Like they, it's, it's a lot of air tunnels you know, where they test all kinds of things, airplanes, rockets, for aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to see a spin test. You know, They put like a an F-14 in a vertical wind tunnel to see what happens when the jets sort of go into a flat spin. F-14. And then test, you know, devices to get them out of the spin. Oh. You know, because when when you go, when a jet goes into a flat spin, that's like game over, you know, if, yep. if they don't you'll, get out of it quickly. Out. Well, some of them, I asked that question, some of them depends on how big they are and how fast they spin. For some of them, the pilot can't actually pass out like in the f-14 which is a two-seater the front pilot can pass out the one that's a little bit farther back may be able to stay awake so they actually get the controls when they're Mm. trying to get out of a spin whereas like an f-15 is not quite as big and they generally won't pass out during a flat spin but you lose altitude very quickly so you just don't have that you have very little time to get out of a spin i like when the pilots are uh, fighting the g's uh they're trained to try to poop themselves why? Mm-hmm. Because it, got, it it builds it pushes blood, blood up into your, your face brain. and into yeah. your head. It's the same that same sort of sphincter oh. tightening. When you're under that duress of multiple G's, oh, uh, yeah. you just have to try to <laughs> push all the blood into your face. And one way to do that is to try to crap your pants. Well, it's a it's a Valsalva maneuver, and it's just bearing down. It's, so if you bear, bear down really hard, it's losing control of your bowels is not the key part. It's the bear uh, right. down. Yeah, right. that helps. Wait, isn't, isn't the Valsal maneuver when you hold your nose and, and you blow out your, your ears? I thought well, that was the Valsal maneuver. Or is it a similar it, thing? It, you don't have to hold your nose or anything. It's just when it's just bearing down. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It could be trying to breathe out against closed you know mouth and nose, but you, you right. don't have to hold your nose or try to pop yours or anything. Oh, okay. From um, diving, I learned that. Yeah, I got to fly yeah. a an F. I got to fly in a seven fifty seven simulator. How what what level of simulator? You know, like uh, uh, the training simulator they use for actual pilots. Holy I mean, a real shit, one. Steve! How cool. was it? It was. And? It was not nearly as hard as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Seriously, so for, first of all, I had somebody sitting next to me telling me what to do. That makes all the difference in the world, right? Because you know, initially I sit down in the pilot seat. It's like a, it's like a real. Flight simulator. So it's like you're in the cockpit of a real 757. That was cool. Don't crash. Don't crash. Don't crash. Did you get the and crash? And land? I landed three times and took off twice. All successfully? All successfully. I did not crash. Wow. Awesome. Was it the kind of simulator that moves though? Like does it, does it have no. to? No. It, right. it was just all visual. So okay. there was no there was no physical feedback. So the hardest thing was I didn't know when I was on the ground because there was no physical feedback to tell uh, you right. on there's the no, ground. It was all no visual. There's no feedback. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you do sound effects with your mouth? Like, <laughs> yeah, did you no, fire like, the photons? Yeah. Yeah, where, where's the guns? I want to fire my guns. Yeah, yeah. But Steve, it was how was the resolution? It was, it was, the resolution was like realistic. It was visually, you could believe you're in a real jet. Wouldn't it be funny if the visuals cool. were Minecraft? Minecraft yeah, visuals. Right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Or, or Death Star, like going over the Death Star. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was, it was the kind of controls we had a joystick. So basically, I had like three sets of controls. I had to control the thrust, the joystick, which was, you know, your steering. And then when you, once you're on the ground, you have two foot brakes and you can use that to stop the plane, but also to steer to stay on the runway. So that was pretty much it. They did everything else. Like I didn't have to put the landing gear down or do anything else. Steve, did Leslie Nielsen come in and say good luck? <laughs> Are you a doctor? Yes, I'm a doctor. Do you like gladiator That's on the movies? 747, not the 757. Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> did you get any sense from the video screens of true motion? Like did it fool you at any time that you were moving? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. Because it was full, full vi- vi- you know, visual immersion. I got, I got a little degrees, right? little vertigo when there was like the complete disconnect between what you're seeing and what you're feeling, you know? Yep. Yeah, you have that moment. Yeah, you so, would. Yeah, so I landed during the day, then I landed at night, and then he said, all right, I'm going to throw some, some crosswind at you for the third one. I'm like, okay, fine. Rob, the guy who was actually hosting me, my talk down there. He's act. He's a pilot. He's a, he hasn't flown commercially, but he's he flies like his own plane. So he's sitting in the co-pilot seat. He's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. So I'm, you know, coming in for the landing, and you know, trying to gauge my altitude and trying to keep to the center of the runway. Then they throw the crosswinds at me, and that uh. was hard. Then suddenly it was like, okay, shit, this is really hard. So. <laughs> Rob is yelling, give it some yaw, give it some yaw. And I'm like, the yaw, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yaw. Let's, let's look for the <laughs> Which one was Y that? button. That must be the yaw. So, you know, uh, yaw is when you, you turn right or left in the horizontal plane, right? So roll is when, like, the wings go to the left or to the right. Pitch is front, back, and yaw is turning. On the, it's just on the like a, you're holding – if you right. held the plane – Level and just turned it left or right. Right. Rotate. Right. Yeah, think of the nose. Look, yeah. follow the nose. So you compensate for the wind by yawing, you know, into the wind. And I, whatever, I just used the, the joystick and I, I managed to get down and stay on the runway and it was fine. So then he tried to land and because he was a pilot, the, the, the guy who was running the simulation said, all right, I'm going to give you some serious crosswinds, okay? Oh, gosh. Yeah, so he, uh, 100, 100 mile an hour. Yeah, so he threw out, he threw like, Really, really intense you know, crosswinds at him, and we basically crashed. That's when I got vertigo. Was when he was trying to land in heavy. Oh, <laughs> that's close your eyes. Yeah, we're like bouncing up and like, down off the runway. It was really, really hard. <laughs> oh, so, God. so Steve, if you're on a commercial flight now, and there was an emergency situation that came back into the thing, and they said, "Can anyone here fly the plane?" Would you at all feel confident that you could that you could help out? I, I think I I think I probably could because it's it. I probably awesome. would have a reasonable chance of like. Getting the plane onto the runway, it wouldn't be pretty, but right. but maybe nobody would die. You know. Okay. Okay. But what's funny? I'll take that. When I was that's flying, a good rule. Yeah. And it, it would totally depend on the, the situation. If there were heavy crosswinds, you were dead. You know. But if it <laughs> this, if it were if it wasn't bad, I I might be able to. I know I know exactly what I have to do. You know. Okay. Yeah. But what's funny is when I was flying back into Hartford. It was a rough landing. It was a rough landing. Wait, the real landing, you mean? The right? real landing. The, the real landing. Flight. It was just really no bad, bad winds. And then we're, and I could tell. What's funny is, we're coming in for the landing, and I could tell that we're getting crosswinds. And 
belt the plane through the yard. <laughs> Steve, Steve, run, Steve runs to the cockpit. More <laughs> yaw, Kimmy, yaw. 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 I need yaw, bastards. A terrorist, get him. No, it's like <laughs> the plane was literally doing exactly what it was doing in the simulator, and I could tell, you know, it was funny. Uh, but yeah, I gave a talk for for Langley on science communication. And while I was down there, I met up with the Southeast Virginia skeptics. I got a good group down there. Every place cool. I go, there's like a local you know, skeptics group that are really active. So that's really great. That's reassuring. I know. Isn't good. that amazing, Steve? At George, you yeah. know, I went to, to Malmo, Sweden, and the local skeptics organized a, uh, a meetup there. And I... I gave a talk slash got interviewed in front of the in front of them and it was amazing. You know, I was like, here I am yeah. in another country, and you know, it was like going to a- anywhere I've ever been. Like, there's a, a lot of common things about the skeptics. You know, I just felt really at home with those people. It was great. Nice. So, George, what have you been up to? Oh, plugging away, plugging away gigs and uh, and pod casting and all kinds of stuff. I had a premiere of the Broad Street Score, the piece that we're going to be uh, that's going to be at Nexus, which is very exciting. That. The the string quartet version of uh, my songs, which uh, apart from it uh, two and a half feet of snow falling on the day of the show, apart from that, everything was great. Yeah, right. yeah everything was great. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, I oh I felt for you, George. Yeah, uh, we moved Jeez. it to the following day oh. and but it it went great. It like it was a proof of concept sort of the the premiere here in Bethlehem. We wanted to see if it, you know, would would the show work? How long would it be? Would the pieces fit together? And it all worked really well. So I'm super psyched for for May and Nexus. George, were you inspired at all by, to do this by what Elvis Costello did back in the early 90s when he kind of did this, the similar thing? Yeah, if you mean inspired uh, in terms of totally ripping off, then yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't going there. I'm just no, saying, no, no, no. The, the Juliet Letters the is, Juliet one of my Letters, favorite, is one yeah. of my favorite albums of all time. The Juliet Letters is, is so brilliant because not only did Elvis sort of write the lyrics and, and, and the music for it, but the quartet, the, uh, the Brodsky Quartet, who plays yeah. with him, they also sort of co-wrote it. So it's really idiomatically kind of perfect for those instruments and that and that ensemble. And then the songs are just wonderful and the whole yeah, that album. I figure since that was around ninety two, ninety three, yep. you know, like twenty five years later to really steal something and rip off an idea is just about enough time where where not everyone will it'll will be aware of it. So <laughs> just a couple, a handful. Just a couple, just yes, yeah. But it's <laughs> you know and I, I had I tell you what though, I mean imitation is the best form of flattery and that that album is, is fantastic. It's always had a special place for me in my music collection so i'm glad that you did this and i'm oh, looking cool. forward to seeing i think i think you'll dig it yeah wait. if you like the juliet letters you'll like this i mean what's what's great is between slough uh of course my my great great friend slough who did half the arrangements and a gentleman that i found on twitter uh from finland named veiko rihu um, he did the other half of the arrangements and it's, they're just, they're so good. They're better than they have any right to be. And that makes my stuff sound so much better than it actually is. Uh, it's really cool. So the arrangements are wonderful and, and it's going to be really, really fun. So that was, that was nice to have apart again, apart from the damn weather, just to have that work and to, to kind of get excited for the, the New York city premiere that's going to happen yeah, on the thir- Thursday of Nexus. Awesome. Do it for reals. In yes. New York. This yes. is May 12th. May 12th. In New York City, the Thursday of Nexus uh, weekend. And then on Friday, you'll be joining us again for the Skeptical Extravaganza. Yes. Which we are going to mm-hmm. make even better this year. Even more extravaganza ish. Yes. And Bill and I um, requested to do it again with us, which yeah, we thought he was cool. And we, sa- and we said, no. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no, but we had a great time doing it with Bill last year, and then when we were, oh, yeah. we were talking to Bill to come back to Nexus this year because we were just you know we'd probably want him to come every year. He said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, and I want to do that show with the guys again." <laughs> which was oh so my cool. god! Yeah, it was yeah. fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll do something else crazy with him. We got to come up with a, a new funny crazy bit with him. And while we're talking about Nexus, we had a lot of great workshops. This uh, this year, mm-hmm. Jay, you and I, and Brian Wecht, and some other fourth guy who you, you just just signed up. We're, we're doing a Star Wars, Star Trek universe, like the philosophy of Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah, specifically, we're going to talk about Star Trek's Prime Directive and Star Wars Jedi and Sith philosophy, and we're yeah. going to just see do these philosophies hold water? The, do mm. they have any inherent value? I'll tell you one thing, Steve. I'm bringing my lightsaber. Oh, I, I will have both of my lights. Oh, I'll bring uh, oh, five of mine, right, right Bob? <laughs> so we also have uh, Master Authority NLP Skeptic Practitioner Speed Certification. That should be interesting. Ask okay. a physicist cool. how to argue. I'm doing my doing a how to argue one. Also, no, the, no, you're not. The skeptical healthcare <laughs> consumer. I tried, George. An activism workshop and an improv workshop and a vocal lab, a participatory tour through the science of human vocalization with uh, Hai Ting, who is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, Yeah. And by by the way, Hai Ting is going to be the narrator for the Broad Street Score. Oh, that's right. You didn't didn't say on uh, on Geologic. You just said it was a mystery person. Yes. Well, it's official now. So, yes, she she agreed to do it, and I'm so excited. It's going to be really great. Awesome, George. That is great to hear. And in case there's one listener out there who doesn't know about your podcast, George, you, George, you put out a wonderful podcast, Geologic. It's one of the few podcasts I listen to on a regular basis, to be honest with you. I love it. I binge on it when I'm traveling, so I just listen to a whole bunch of your episodes because I was oh, okay. traveling to Virginia. Because, you know, it's like the time I, I yeah. have the time to do it. So it's like you're my traveling companion, which oh. is uh, it's, uh, nice. It's, it's nice. It is nice. Oh, it's, thanks for saying that, man. That's really, that's really cool. Thank you. I really, I highly recommend it. Definitely, you know, you're, it's, it's funny, it's well produced, it's you know informative. There's bits on there that I'm like, shit, I would love to have that bit on the SGU. <laughs> you know, like facts that will f you up. Yes. It's brilliant. It's I love brilliant. that. Yep. Yeah. Well, what's what's it worth to you? <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. It's we'll right. talk. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll talk offline. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, get us started. With a forgotten superhero of science. Sure. For this week, I'm covering Norman Borlaug, 1914 to 2009. That's a hell of a run. He was trained as a plant pathologist, but his work breeding wheat created the Green Revolution, got him a Nobel Peace Prize, and possibly saved as many as a billion lives. Now, Bob, if this guy won a Nobel Prize, how forgotten is he? You know, I never heard of him. That's so pretty that, much that's what I go your by. Threshold? Okay. That, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's, that's a reasonable, it's, a reasonable heuristic. I think so. It's you know, it's decent. I think. I mean, well, you know, maybe it's crap, but I don't care. This guy should needs <laughs> to be trumpeted. I mean, how many people that I cover 
that we talk about that we know could actually say has the guy has literally saved hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, it's that's an amazing achievement that mm-hmm. only a handful of people can claim. So his amazing Borlaug's amazing accomplishments began essentially in Mexico when he went there to fight stem rust, which is a fungus that invades wheat. So he spent 10 years with his colleagues crossbreeding literally thousands of strains from all over the planet. And his focus uh, probably makes a lot of sense. He was going for a high-yield, disease-resistant variety. But actually, he succeeded too well in a sense. The wheat that he created had so much wheat on it that it couldn't stand up. Too many, So many grains on the tip of it that it couldn't even stand up. So we had to cross it with a Japanese dwarf wheat to create a semi-dwarf wheat. And it was an incredible success for Mexico. Um, amazing. Uh, but that was really just, just preliminary. Now we transition over to India and Pakistan. India had two devastating droughts in 66 and 67. In addition to that, India's population was increasing so fast that many, many people thought that famine and massive deaths were inevitable and unstoppable. For example, Paul Ehrlich uh, famously wrote in his 68 bestseller, The Population Bomb, he said, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. That's what he wrote. Uh, he was famous for that, for, that, for that quote, and a lot of people believed it, uh, but he didn't know about Borlaug. Now, the Minister of Food and Agriculture in India knew of Borlaug's worth, work, and he's, he took, kind of took of a chance. He uh, had planes flown in carrying 16,000 tons of seeds of his miracle wheat. Then Borlaug and his, and his team trained uh, farmers how to cultivate his strain. This guy had an amazing work ethic. He was in the dirt with these people Unfortunately, for, Bob, for years. The, the first time they took a plane trip with all that much wheat in the cargo hold, it was all eaten by little furry animals. Really? Who died? Who? No, Bob. Ah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Critically, sounds, sounds like sounds like trouble. Gremlins. It was big trouble. Yeah, <laughs> big trouble. Um, so the result, the result in India and Pakistan were were truly remarkable. In, in 1974, India was self sufficient, which uh, Ehrlich said that they would that they would not be self sufficient. Um, in in its in its production of all cereals, especially Captain Crunch. But when when Borlaug <laughs> arrived in India, uh, they were producing 11 million tons of wheat. Today, they're producing 60 million tons, largely due to his impact. Uh, Greg Easterbrook wrote in the Atlantic, perhaps more than anyone else. Borlaug is responsible for the fact that throughout the post-war era, except in sub-Saharan Africa, global food production has expanded faster than the human population, averting the mass starvation that, that starvations that were widely predicted. The form of agriculture that Borlaug preaches may have prevented a billion deaths. So what, I mean, what he did essentially was that he allowed populations to increase their their uh, their agricultural year yields more than their their population was increasing, and that that has, is what saved millions and millions and maybe a billion lives. He, it was such a success in Pakistan and India that's where the, the term Green Revolution came from, and uh, and he got a Nobel Peace Prize, as I said, in 1970. And in case any of you are wondering what he thought about GMOs, he considered genetically modified crops as the best hope for a future with a bountiful food, food supply. Um, mm-hmm. And he's got some other great quotes mm-hmm. ab- about genetically modified organisms. So remember Norman Borlaug? Mention him to your friends. 
perhaps when discussing the role allopolyploidy has on triticale. Ha! That's <laughs> that real, sounded that's cool. Quadro triticale. Not quadro, just triticale. So, so he was just doing, I mean, he was doing all this stuff just by crossbreeding? Just by. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're talking. 50s, 60s, 70s or so, yeah, uh, yeah the, the genetic modification really just wasn't there. Um, I mean, all it really is is a slower form of, uh, of genetic modification. Right. He said, as a matter of fact, Mother Nature has crossed species barriers, and sometimes nature crosses barriers between genera, you know, between unrelated groups of species. And uh, take the case of wheat. It is the result of a natural cross made by Mother Nature long before there was scientific man. So this guy realized uh, the need for genetic modification. And one of the other points he used to make was that um, there's not that much more arable land that's available in the world. I mean, uh, Russia is one place and Africa and maybe one other place. And once that arable land is taken up, he's like, that's it. I mean, the only other options would be to plow down forests. So we have to focus on increasing yield. And our best bet to do that is is with gen- genetically modified organisms. You know, what's funny is uh, it, it, I'm always surprised, even though now I intellectually know this, but it's like I, I almost always forget. Like you think of wheat as one thing. And then you realize there are thousands oh my God, yeah. of cultivars of wheat. And the same is true pretty much of anything, right? It's like you think of like corn. the tomato or whatever as a thing or corn as a thing. But no, Barley. there's always hundreds or thousands of individual species or cultivars of these groups. We really – when we think of a species, we're really usually thinking of a genus you know, or right. of a group. And there's multiple, multiple, multiple you know, types. And, and that's what makes it such an incredibly powerful tool. That genetic diversity is what yeah. allowed Borlaug to do what he did. If we had just one, if we just had one species, forget it, forget it. Yeah, it would yeah. be such a slow process. Even with GMOs, it'd be it'd be more difficult. You know what my favorite crop is? What do you got? Mm-hmm. Sorghum. Sorghum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the deal? What's the deal with that? I, I, they yeah. were talking all about it on Walking Dead. Is that is that kind of a, yes, like a, very a, important a, a super weed or what's the deal with that? I haven't well, heard too much about it. I didn't do any sorghum. research on it, but it sounds to me like it's a very hardy, easy to grow crop. It's just so fun to say. <laughs> it's just the best. Zombies are real, right? It's the in the grass family. Be. Yeah, it's a grown for its grain. That's a grain. Sorghum. And uh, there's an H in there, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of silent. Uh, used to feed animals alcoholic beverages. Oh, okay. Ooh. That's what it used to feed alcoholics. What? Say no more. Say to no make more. alcoholic beverages. Oh. So, George, what do you think of this headline? Scientists develop matrix style technique of feeding information directly into your brain. It's, yeah. You know, I know kung fu. Yeah. That's I all know. I <laughs> it's, what they, it's what they want you to do. I think. know kung fu. How Here's could a, that. Yeah, hit me. come on. Here's another one. Novices download pilots' brainwaves and learn to fly. Or you just did that, right? Well, I just did that. Yeah, yeah. Or upload. <laughs> no. Yeah, you could upload information into your brain and learn to fly in seconds. Mm. In seconds. Whoa, 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 whoa. In, I think this? fiction is the third one. Yeah, they didn't say oh, seconds. I mean, yet. they. Okay. No, but I'm reading headlines. I'm reading. Oh my headlines. god, it's worse than I thought. That it's is so di- pathetic. <laughs> This is horrific. It's, it's this an, is a really it's bad even, example. It's even worse than you think. Let me tell you what's going on that. here. No, it's uh, not. It, it kept I, getting worse. I, I the more post. I looked into it, the worse it got. So <laughs> I actually – the morning I was giving my talk on 
science communication. Like, all right, I'm going to find an example of bad news reporting <laughs> about a science story this morning. Like you hit the gold mine. <laughs> and just to Tank, prove that I can give me do a, it. Give me a news story. Yeah, just to prove that I could do it any day. Like, this is every single day. So I got this today. Just That was my point. But I did. I got lucky. I hit the. I hit a gold you did, mine. You on did. Like, <laughs> thank you. I'll use that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's funny. If it came out the next day, you would have been like, "Don't, don't." <laughs> <laughs> so most of the, the reporting specifically said that the information was taken from the brains of pilots in a simulator, like landing a plane, just like I was doing, and was transferred to novices who then learned how to fly a plane. A couple of the articles, when you read deeper into it, said that the that doing that increased enhanced the learning by thirty three percent, which doesn't uh. sound as doesn't sound as good. But even that's not accurate. Mm-hmm. So I I went to the press release. The press release mm-hmm. was horrible. The, <laughs> All of this crap came from the press release. And who who was responsible for that? Was Ooh. it one of the scientists? Yeah. I don't know. I actually emailed them uh, to try to so I could find out, like try to you know reconstruct who said what and how things happened. But they haven't responded to me, so I might do a f- quick follow up on this next week if I could actually interface with the scientists who were quoted and the the people who wrote the right. press release. Um, yeah, but, see, but, see, but how are they transferring? What are they, what are they doing? Yeah, what's, like, what's, what's going that on? That was what my they, question. What is actually happening? You certainly have no idea what's actually happening from reading any of the news reports or the press release. Here's the press release. This is what it says. Dr. Matthew Phillips and his team of investigators from HRL's Information and System Sciences Laboratory used transcranial direct current stimulation in order to improve learning and skill retention. And here's a quote now. We measured the brain activity patterns of six commercial and military pilots and then transmitted these patterns into novice subjects as they learned to pilot an airplane in a realistic flight simulator. <laughs> what? That was the press release. Wow. And they and they made you know the analogy to the Matrix. So that was it. So that every newspaper <laughs> reported Matrix-style learning, upload in seconds. <laughs> of course. Is the H in HRL holistic? <laughs> yeah. No, no, I don't know. It seems like a, it's a, something like a legitimate research group. But uh, who knows? Who, maybe they hired just some PR firm to do the press releases. And I don't know. So I found the study. The study is transcranial direct current stimulation modulates neuronal activity and learning and pilot training. Not as sexy as downloading no. in seconds. Uh, <laughs> and modulates and is a key the word there. And- I could not find anywhere in this study mention of recording patterns from pilots. It's nowhere in the methods. It's nowhere in the discussion or the results. I looked. I read the whole thing. I couldn't find it. So, Steve, seriously, then that guy just made it up. Or the press release did. The, the, whoever wrote the press release did. Or it was translated or into who Chinese knows? and then backed into English or something. They, were talk, they could have talked to the guy for hours and he was meant – that's what I'm trying to figure out. Where did that come from if it's not part of the study? Maybe, You're the only person on the planet trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. It's, so this is, amazing. this is what the study actually did. There were 31 subjects, which is Prepare small. Prepare to be thoroughly unimpressed. Yeah. It was divided into four groups. One group had transcranial direct current stimulation to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. The dorsal? Second group. What is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? Is that one of those caps with the, with the wires on it? Okay. Yeah. So transcranial means through the, through the cranium, through the skull. 
direct current is direct current and stimulation. So they use direct current stimulation of the brain. Uh, The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain and and that part – stimulating that part of the brain has been correlated in other studies with enhanced learning improved memory consolidation or whatever. Now, the study actually does a really good job of reviewing uh, a lot of the previous research. And it seems to me that, and I've also wrote about this before, I've read all the research about this before, and I got caught up when I was you know, writing about it now. It's uh, interesting, but not ready for prime time, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, the, the not totally clear if there's really an effect here, but there's it's promising, right? This is promising research, but we're not quite ready to use it yet. So then there was a third group that had TDCS to the primary motor cortex, basically over the part of the brain that directly controls your movement. And then the fourth group was sham stimulation to the motor cortex. So two treatment groups, two control groups. So they trained naive subjects. These are basically college students, right? They, tr- they trained them to uh, fly in the simulator. And they found... Absolutely no difference in those four groups. <laughs> no difference. Wow. Not not even not even noise level of difference. Here, no, there was a noise level of difference. I'll tell you about that in no. a second. So let okay. me read the exact the exact quote. Neither the initial nor the final behavioral performance were significantly different between stimulation and sham groups. The average trial duration to reach a certain level was not significantly different between the two groups. In addition, the average number of trials to reach a certain skill level was not statistically significant between the groups. Significant differences in online, offline, and combined learning rates were not observed between stimulation and sham groups. Like nothing was different except for this one thing. Except a lame thing. Well, The variability or the variance within the stimulation groups was 33% less than within the sham groups. Who the hell knows what that means? <laughs> well, right? it's because they didn't swallow the blue pill. If they had swallowed the blue <laughs> pill, then there would be a I definite difference. So that's that's where the 33% came from. It Jeez. wasn't a 33% improvement. It was a 33% decrease in the variability with no change in the average, Right. Can you imagine that? So, like, it's a slightly yeah. narrower bell curve, but the the peak is exactly <laughs> in the same place. Right. I mean, the difference between the best and the worst was narrower, you know, a little less. So, what? Right. I mean, that could exactly. just be, oh, my God. This is an epic disconnect. Right. That's it. That's it. They also did a lot of stuff of sort of looking at what was happening in the brains of the of the subjects as they were training to fly and that's it sort of just basic science just sort of what's happening in the brain while they're doing this sort of stuff but in terms of the effect of the transcranial director of stimulation on either location there was no enhancement in the rate of learning in getting to a certain you know preset ability or anything just a slight decrease in the variability of the outcome, which is noise. To me, that's noise, right? That's like you look at a hundred things and, well, look, this is significant. You know, it probably yeah. isn't really significant if you control for how many comparisons they made. And that's just the ones they reported. Who knows how com- many comparisons they actually made? But it sounds, it sounds like the work of homeopaths trying to find little noise in their market. I mean, the thing things. is, the study itself is fine. I have no problems with the study. Or even the reporting in the study. 
the huge disconnect is between the study and the press release. Yeah, and what was yeah, actually reported. Yeah. And then the what, outer. What are they? What are they selling? What's the press release selling? I mean, is there something that they're? Saying I think just their come? research, just their research lab, their brand. Oh, okay, okay. You know, it's like, hey, yeah. oh, look what our researchers did. Isn't this cool? You know. Gotcha, gotcha. And it worked. Yeah. And it worked. They got a sure. huge oh, sure slew of reporting about it. But this is one of the biggest disconnects between the actual yeah. study and what is being reported that I've encountered in a long time. Wow. Just happened to be on the one day when I was looking for exactly this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's also it's a uh, smallish study, so it's it's a quote unquote pilot study. Pun uh-huh. intended. Um, yeah, it's a preliminary study, so but you know, whatever. The results are probably would inform the design of further studies, but it doesn't really tell us anything. So that got translated into uploading information into your brain in seconds, right? So how much does it cost? Right. Yeah, quite a unbelievable. Week. So that is, yeah, so this is a massive, massive journalistic failure. And it happened at the press release level is where it really happened. And I'm still trying to figure out who is responsible for that, but we'll see if I could, if they respond to me or not. Maybe the whole thing is a meta like a performance or or examination or a or a scam to kind of call out the media. Like maybe, you know, in in a week or two, it'll be revealed like these HRL people are actually just they wanted to show how easy it is to get hits like that would be that would be great if that was the case, which probably is not the case. Yeah, but that's my that's my hope. (laughs) Well, that was done, you know, George, that's been done. That exact thing with the the chocolate making you lose weight or something. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. it was it was a performance piece just to show how that you you could completely fake a crappy study and the media would eat it up. Credible, you know, uh, with credibility, yes. would not, yeah. not do their research. But uh, I don't think that's the case here. But I hear what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, and there's another good point here, Steve. Is that yeah. you know, it's kind of rare to see such an epic failure going from the study to the press release. Usually, it's going from the press release to the uh, to the news outlets. That's more typical, I would say. That's but not it, true, but Bob. Really, it's, it's not true. I, it's been studied, they, and it actually is is happens just as often at the press release. Wow, that's that's a surprise. Uh, yeah. But all right, but the point then my point though is would still be valid in that it doesn't matter that the press release was screwed up because a good science journalist should go to that original study and should be able to to detect a problem just like you detected, Steve. What a reporter who is not a neurologist should do. Is talk to is talk to a neurologist who is not an author on the study. Make sure they have the the original study to read and say, "Tell me what this says." And you talk to an author on the study. You talk to both, and then you find out what the hell's going on. But nobody did that. Nobody did any actual journalism. journalism, Right? This is science by press release. No, nobody did any actual journalism and found out what was actually going on. They just took the bait. And went with it. It, it shows yeah. a level of laziness that is that is very d- disheartening, and also it shows a lack, you know, of, of scientific literacy on a lot of these guys. And caring, I think they don't care. Ugh, right? Sure. They they got the headlines. Their job is to sell. Yeah. They got the clicks. They got clicks. They were ha- they, it, they, it was handed to them on a silver platter. Yeah, they just took it. Yeah. All right, that was interesting. I, I love those experiences <laughs> where things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> the deeper you go, and it's like, how deep is the rabbit hole? I love that. Uh, anyway, George. Yes. You're going to tell us about a real <laughs> science news item. about Yes, a, an actual non-onion-like yeah, <laughs> horror a, story. 
about some astronaut twins. Yeah. So it's interesting that you were down at NASA because this relates directly to those guys there. So we've all heard about Scott Kelly, who just returned to uh, to terra firma, uh, I believe last week, after spending a year in space, which is, I think it's the longest an American has stayed in space. I think there was a Russian that stayed in space longer than him, but um, or a Soviet, I guess. But uh, he's the longest uh, American. It was over just under a year. And he's returned and, and it's a great story. And he's he's been on Colbert. He's been on all kinds of late night shows. And he's a Scott Kelly is a very interesting guy. He's a real promoter, obviously, of science and of and of uh, the whole NASA program and all that stuff. But what uh, I wasn't aware of and I got confused here. He's, he's mom, actually a twin. He has there. a brother, Mark Kelly, who's who's also I, identical, an identical, identical twin. Yes, identical twin. Yeah, and Mark Kelly is actually married to uh, Gabrielle Giffords. She's the congresswoman that got oh, shot. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a sort of as a side little quick story. Uh, he was actually in space when she was shot. So they had to give a uh, they had to have a private line, kind of a communication line set up, which apparently never happens. So he knew when they said, "Hey, Mark, like in ten minutes, NASA wants to have a private line with you." Uh, he knew. It was bad news. Yeah, like there was no, there was no way it was going to be good news. Uh, so the poor guy just had to sort of deal with the fact that his wife was, you know, on a, on a, on a, in a hospital after having been shot. But she's, she's, her recovery is amazing. They're an amazing couple and the whole thing. Well, point being that, uh, NASA in its inimitable way decided that they had a great opportunity here since they knew that Scott was going to be up in space for a year and they knew that Mark was not going to be up in space for a year, they decided to study the two of them throughout, I guess, his space tenure, but especially upon his return. They wanted to see what the effects are long-term as they're planning for Martian missions or long-term stuff. They're concerned about all the, all the things that happen to you when you're floating around in microgravity. It's, it's, it has quite a tremendous effect on the body. So they're going to have these 10 different studies uh, or 10 different uh, experimental sort of programs done with these guys. So there's stuff that obviously that happens when you're up in space in, zero, in, in microgravity or zero gravity. You know, all your fluid tends to kind of shift around and it fills up your face and it, it causes all kinds of issues for astronauts. So they want to study it, it causes intracranial pressure, visual impairment, inflammation, potentially linked to cardiovascular disease and other things. So they're going to do a number of tests. And I just love that these tests, uh, just to read them is really fun. So they're going to check how space flight uh, can induce changes in different organs like the heart, the muscle, or the brain. They're going to compare Scott's with Mark's and see what the difference is. They're going to see the effect space light can have on perception and reasoning, decision-making, and alertness. The dietary differences and stressors define how both affect organisms in the twins' stomachs and their guts, like how their digestive systems might be different uh, after prolonged space flight. Um, they're going to look at the way the genes in the cells are turned on and off as a result of spaceflight and how stressors like radiation, confinement, and microgravity prompt changes in the proteins and the metabolites gathered in biological samples like blood, saliva, urine, and stool. They're going to have differential effects on telomeres and telomerase in twin astronaut associated with spaceflight. They're going to have comprehensive whole genome analysis of differential epigenetic effects of space travel on monozygotic twins. They're going to have biochemical homozygotic 
homozygous twin control for 12 months space flight exposure, uh, DNA and RNA methylation before, during, and after human space travel, longitudinal integrated multi-omics analysis of biomolecular effects of space travel, and finally, characterizing personalized changes in baseline immune abnormalities and stimulated immune response in the presence of a benign, trivalent, inactivated flu vaccination. They actually, they gave him a flu vaccination before he, they gave both of them a flu vaccination uh, before Scott flew off, and they're going to compare and see how the body deals with that in microgravity and stuff. It's just so perfectly... NASA-like, yeah, to take total advantage, total advantage of the situation. The coolest thing uh, I read that since uh, Scott has been in space for a year, he's actually two inches taller. Sure. He's two inches two taller than his inches. twin. Wow. Yeah, that, that's yeah. a lot because from what I've read, that uh, microgravity will uh, make you know will decompress your spine and make you an inch taller. But I guess after an extended period of time, that actually yeah. doubled. Wow. Yeah, I think I think it's like just under two apparently. But uh, you know how like when you, when you sleep, you're actually a little bit taller in the morning because the the the, the pads in your in your spine kind of expand, so mm-hmm. you can be about a half inch taller in the morning than you are at night. Well do that i guess for a year and uh, yeah he's almost apparently two inches taller which uh i wonder how long it's going to last i'm not sure if that's like you know for a week for a month for whatever could you imagine um, what it felt like though guys you know he, he comes down feels gravity for the first time in in almost a year he's got to be utterly exhausted yeah i mean even with all the two hours of exercise <laughs> a day up there is what they require yeah. the astronauts to do you know his heart shrank from from you know lack of not lack not zero use but not as his cardiovascular right. system doesn't have to work as hard in outer space. Yeah, yeah. You lose um, what was it, George? Like one point five percent of your bone mass per month. Then, yeah, it's it's significant. It's yeah. actually it's it actually it, it again sort of reiterates how difficult space travel is, and I think I think they really got to work on some gravity simulation thing yeah. for long for long term stuff because it's just it's too much to fight. You know, you you can have you all the it, yeah. rubber bands, rubber bands and treadmills you want, but but you just gotta even if it's you know half gravity or something to just help with you know with yeah, the big just, rotating yeah that's it rotate a piece of the thing. ship yeah but you know think about if people are going to go to Mars and if they're under a zero gravity environment if they're in there they're in bad shape when they land even though Mars has less gravity they're still going to be screwed up like these are people yeah. that are, these guys and girls are going to need to like be digging and you know doing all sorts of crazy stuff to get their habitat in shape they can't be completely screwed up and fatigued from being weightless for a year of space mm, travel yeah. right right scott said the thing he missed the most was were uh, fruits and vegetables like fresh vegetables and like a salad he said he's going to have a huge salad and he wanted to jump into a pool because like you forget how water behaves and he said he wanted to just dive into a pool and be surrounded by water. To you know, that that was what he wanted to do the most. Yeah, yeah awesome. I, that. I wonder, you know, how long it would take for humans to like evolve and adapt right. to space. You know, like two weeks, ten thousand years from now, are we gonna? Is there gonna be a subspecies of man that's space right. adapted? That what? Deals with all these issues, Steve. Come your vision on. is so short. Ten thousand I mean, years, and Steve, in fifty years, we're gonna we're gonna evolve ourselves to have traits that will work with space. Flight. Of course, of course, CRISPR, baby. <laughs> we, have a we're not gonna wait for impossibility. Selective pressures, changes to make. No legs, but you have gas ass thrusters to propel you uh, around a weightless environment. They're gonna be <laughs> tapping into you, Jay, for the, for the prototype. Thank you. 
This be like like Spaceo Erectus or something, or what would that be? Would that be? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? When they find the fossil remains, yeah, no, right. Homo spaceicus. Homo spaceicus. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Homo Homo skyicus or something. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jay, tell us about FRBs. What are they? Well, George, why don't you tell me what you think an FRB is? It's a a fast riboflavin. B- bacon. Flavin. How about free <laughs> random back rubs? Ooh, even better. Ooh. How about I fancy like. refried beans? Ooh, fancy. Yeah, ooh, I like that too. Now, what are they, Steve? Uh, it's a foot rubbing barbecue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, f- uh, folded resin bacon. Bob? Oh, I got nothing. <laughs> Bob, shit. Bob, you Come always on, Bob. joke with <laughs> like this. <laughs> I know, right? If I'm put on the spot, I me, freeze, mental freeze. I, I literally cannot think of any words I'm thinking with FRB. Nothing. Forget to remind Bob. Yeah. Robert Forget Baldwin. <laughs> An FRB is a fast radio burst, and for over 10 years, scientists mm. have been uh, they've been wanting to figure out what they are. So it's a um, you know what we do know about them that they're incredibly fast, like millisecond transmission of radio waves that seem to appear for no reason and from anywhere. Very unpredictable. They just pick them up at random when they're when they're you know focusing their dishes at different spots in the sky. Now these transmissions um, they could have been generated by lots of different things and probably millions or billions of years ago. And there's a tons of theories about where they are. You know, a couple of them are, you know, it could be a, an energy release from merging neutrino stars or an energy release from a dying black hole. You mean neutron stars? Neutrino stars, sorry. Neutron star. What? That's what, <laughs> what What's a neutrino what star? I never heard it's, of that. It's, you haven't heard of these, Steve? They're really powerful. <laughs> and, Don't and they're brand, brand, Yeah, they're I'm sorry. Neutron stars. Astronomers, though, have found a location in space that has reliably been supplying FRBs. These are like now, these are like blipverts from yeah. from Max Headroom. Yeah, remember blipverts? Yep. No. Yeah, just an amazingly a short few milliseconds. That's not a lot. Blip and and don't think that what we're getting is a strong signal. It really isn't a strong signal at all. It's just it's a it's a tiny little radio frequency blip that is inexplicable. So researchers are using the Ercible Ercible. Arecibo Radio Telescope <laughs> in Puerto Rico. That's located in Puerto Rico, um, which is one of the places. This is like on my bucket list. I always wanted to go check this thing out. The movie so Contact the, featured it. But check this out. They find a location in space that is producing a lot of FRBs. Really cool. In the past four years, they discovered 11 FRB transmissions, which is a lot out of, that, out of this very, very narrow place in space as well like mm-hmm. it's not random places it's this one place now of course a lot of people are like oh my god this is proof of aliens and all that settle down let's talk about this some more so the fact the facts are um that 11 transmissions have come from the same place it rules out though very interestingly it rules out most of the theories about what causes them because if you think about it if merging neutrino Stars, neutron, right, Steve? Neutron. Neutron stars. If merging <laughs> neutron stars were to happen in an area, it would be a devastating event, and it would probably destroy... Yeah, right. So the, to, to clarify, up until just recently, every FRB that has been discovered has been a one-off. And so that's why they say, okay, it's a cataclysmic event that destroys the source. 
whether it's a yeah, neutron star, black hole, whatever. Whatever's happening, it happened and it's done and yeah, the, the, whatever caused it doesn't exist anymore. James Cords, who is an astronomer at Cornell University and is also a co-author of the study, has speculated that the cause could be a very intense pulse from a rotating neutron star. Right, Bob? Was that a pulse? A pulse star? Pulse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the problem is that no stars have been discovered to behave this way b- before because they're thinking, well, maybe it's a it's a neutron star that's being affected by some type of crazy black hole and it's having a, a dramatic effect on its output and and that's why um, it, these things are happening over and over again. So to explain this, Cord's guess is that um, the, neutri- the neutron star would be rotating around or orbiting around an, a, an intense black hole that just destabilizes it. The scientists also believe that the FRBs are coming from places outside our galaxy. Guys, Coming from places really, really, really far away. Uber far. How yeah, far? I mean, it, well, <laughs> so scientists believe that the FRBs are coming from places way, way outside of our galaxy because the signals are disrupted when they pass through plasma clouds. And plasma clouds exist in between the huge empty space between galaxies. So what they did it's was they- It's not so can, empty. Well, it's empty enough where there's the plasma- which is pretty much the only thing that's out there. Actually, did you know that half the stars in the universe are between the galaxies? I did not know that. I knew that. Rogue, rogue stars? Yeah, like <laughs> rogue stars. Cool. But it's largely empty space filled with these plasma clouds. <laughs> yeah. And the plas- what the plasma space. clouds does is it detunes or you know it has a dramatic effect on these radio signals that are that are passing through them. And what, they, what they've determined that is because of how much the radio frequencies have been messed with by these plasma clouds, they can do an estimation on how far away the signals are coming from. And that's how, the, how they know that they're not coming from inside of our galaxy. Or they haven't you know, found one that's coming from inside of our galaxy. It's, it's outside, probably coming from other galaxies. Whoa, that's really cool. Yeah. Is it just white noise? I mean, do these things just generate white noise? George, there, you know, the FRB, like I said, it's a millisecond blip. Right, but but like, where is it? On, is it just a pure radio frequency, like white noise thing? I mean, oh, I see what you're saying. Like you're saying, is it like, does it have multiple frequencies coming at the same time, yeah. or is it? Yeah, yeah could it contain information? In other yeah, words, you know, yeah, like that blip could be an alien transmission beaming us every single piece of information from their, you know, from their existence. In three that, that's pretty good download speed. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Imagine don't, that. Don't, that would be awesome. Don't, yeah, that'd be cool, but don't, don't expect that from my FRB. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, what the hell? You're such a, like, downer, man. <laughs> you, you and I'm, your, just throwing, I'm just throwing <laughs> science at you, kids. Plausibility requirements. What the hell? All right, Evan, I understand, even though this is not really true, that we could now diagnose Alzheimer's disease with an imaging study, although not really. I read about it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Way to bury the lead there, big like guy. a very, very impressive piece of reporting, too. <laughs> All right, well... Go ahead, tell, hit me. Hit me, I'll, I'll let you know what's going on. Yeah, new research by scientists at the University of California at Berkeley have shown for the first time that positron emission tomography, also known as PET scans, can track the progressive stages of Alzheimer's disease in cognitively normal adults. And they are describing it, they are, as a key advance in early diagnosis and staging of the neurodegenerative disorder. And these findings have been published in the journal Neuron. And the principal investigator, Dr. William Yagust, professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, 
and the Helen Willis Neuroscience Institute and is a faculty scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Now, it has to do with, in the autopsy, there's, some, there's something called BRAC staging, which was developed, uh, as he says, through data obtained from the autopsies. But Dr. Yagus says our study is the first to show the staging in people who are not only alive, but who have no signs of cognitive impairment. And this opens the door to the use of PET scans as a diagnostic and staging tool. Steve, you seem to have your doubts or at least firm skepticism as to what's really going on here. I literally read that every month. I mean, there's a new study that comes out about Alzheimer's disease, and that's always where they go. This new information will enable us to diagnose Alzheimer's disease with a blood test, with a spinal tap, with CSF, with an imaging study, with whatever. Uh, and it never comes to fruition because these are basic science research studies where we're just looking at, you know, there's some marker in whatever, in the blood, in the spinal fluid, in, in imaging studies, in this case in a PET scan. And it's interesting. And it's telling us something about the disease. And it's giving us a new research tool, a new way to look at Alzheimer's, another piece of the puzzle as to what's going on in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. But that's a far cry from it being useful as a clinical diagnostic tool. You need specificity and sensitivity at a certain level before it's really useful to us clinically. And the question I would ask myself always is, what am I going to do with this information, right? How is it going to change my management? If it's not really ruling something out definitively or not you know, uh, establishing something to such a degree that I don't have to also still do the other tests to rule out other things, it may have literally zero impact on my management, even mm -hmm. though it's nice academic information, Right. So that's what I, that's, I suspect that's where all of these things end up. It's like, it's useful for research, but not going to affect management clinically. And it's just not at the level of sensitivity and specificity that would be useful clinically. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't go around ordering PET scans on everybody, uh, because I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with the information. But don't you find, do you find it at all helpful that they are able to use the PET scan to reveal buildup of the, uh, of the tau proteins and the, uh, beta amyloid proteins? But remember, do you see the same thing in normal older adults, right? So the real question is. Right. How do you tell the difference between someone suffering from Alzheimer's who has the buildup versus someone who has the buildup? Exactly. And, and that's always the question. So once somebody has dementia, you just really, from a practical point of view, you need to rule out specifically treatable causes of dementia. Everything else we put into this one bucket of Alzheimer's type dementia and we treat them all the same, you know, systematically symptomatically, but we've, we've ruled out anything that specifically would need to be treated. Steve, is there, is there a huge difference in terms of, I mean, like, obviously there must be between an autopsy and like a, an exploratory surgery to determine if someone has Alzheimer's? I mean, is it, is it, you mean a brain biopsy or, or something? Yeah. Whatever that would no, be. Those are the, you get the same information. Brain biopsy is perfectly adequate to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. We don't oh, okay. do that because we're not going to do anything with the information. It's not worth the invasive gotcha. procedure. I gotcha. Okay. We don't have it. We don't have it. Yeah. Cure. Right. It's not going to affect my treatment or management. So right. I, why, right. why there's subject no them? Yeah. There's okay. no point. And we, and I, the only real advantage is, is advising the family about their genetic risk and you get that at autopsy. Yes. So the only real utility mm -hmm. of it you can acquire at autopsy. Therefore, you don't have to do a brain biopsy. Now that's where it remains to be seen whether or not this information at this level, it would, 
would separate out those two populations, normal aging, you know, the senior moment kind of people who don't really have Alzheimer's disease versus somebody who does. And would it do it better than just me doing a five-minute exam, you know? Because if it's not better than me doing a five-minute exam, then again, why order a PET scan? Okay, let's move on. Uh, Bob, you're going to do the final news item about galaxy symmetry. Yeah, this one was a lot of fun to research. Uh, so essentially new discoveries into the structure of the Milky Way seem to confirm that it has four primary spiral arms and that it also may be one of the more symmetrical and beautiful galaxies around. I think yes, so. Well, USA. You know, USA. You, you, you'd think so. You, <laughs> that's right, home field advantage. But, you baby. know, you'd think we would know more about the galaxy that we actually live in. But the Milky Way has has been mysterious for that very fact. Uh, the, the, the Daily Galaxy website had a really good analogy. They compared mapping our own Milky Way galaxy to trying to map your house while sitting in your living room. In fact, I didn't know this, but uh, after we found the very first spiral structure in the Milky Way, it took us a 100 years to definitively say, yes, we are in a spiral galaxy. A 100 years. And then we discovered that we're in a barred spiral, right? Yeah, and then it took many years after that to to, to realize that we were in fact in a barred spiral with What's you that? know with its it's well basically the barred spiral has an elongated central bulge of stars in the middle, so it's not like a circular bulge. It's it's okay. it's like a bar. The spirals come off yeah. a bar rather than coming off of a circle in the middle. Oh, cool! Yeah. Right. So it's no surprise then that only recently uh, uh, astronomers have felt fairly confident that that they confirmed the four spiral alarm model of our of our spiral galaxy and uh this news will be officially released uh later in march i believe in the upcoming issue of astrophysical journal letters now they did this by basically finding molecular clouds that was the key uh now molecular clouds are they're critical to galaxies uh, more critical than i had, had realized before this they're they're a type of interstellar cloud um and if they have enough size and density these clouds of hydrogen can become molecular hydrogen or h2 now that just means that instead of having a simple or ionized atoms of hydrogen they contain molecules of hydrogen where two or more atoms are bound together that's a molecular cloud and it's it's within these clouds uh that you know they become lumpy over time eventually giving birth to stars within them um and when that happens they're called stellar nurseries which i'm sure you you've probably heard more often than molecular clouds uh so essentially the molecular clouds are the sperm and eggs of galactic stars or maybe a zygote would be a better uh, a better a better word but but what does this have to do with spiral arms well it's it's pretty simple these clouds are found exclusively within spiral arms which which of and a spiral arm of course is just a dense collection of gas and dust where most of the stars are are so the bottom line you find these molecular clouds and you find the arms of your galaxy and that's exactly what they did by detecting the carbon monoxide emissions from uh, the WISE Explorer, that's the NASA's Wide Field in Infrared Survey Explorer, the team discovered over 400 nurseries. 
And that, of course, led in turn to the discovery of a huge section of a spiral arm 49,000 light years away from the, the galaxy's core. And that had two interesting implications. So imagine you've got these arms they're, of the galaxy. They're kind of hard to see. And you find this huge section of an arm that kind of connects to this other arm that you already knew existed. So uh, that piece of an arm that they found seems to be a huge end piece of a major spiral arm. And that arm is called the Scutum Centaurus arm. This is the finding that appears to confirm the four-arm model of the galaxy. So instead of having, you know, maybe five or six arms, it kind of seems pretty clear at this point that now we've got these four big arms. This updated representation of the Milky Way means that our galaxy is surprisingly symmetrical, with one side being a near-image uh, a near mirror image of the other side. So the question then is, you know, what would you see if you could go out, say, a half a million or a million light years, turn around and look at our galaxy? What would you see? You would see this elongated bulge of stars at the very center. Coming off at each end of this bar is a major spiral arm. Each arm, of course, curving around the galaxy while simultaneously getting farther and farther away from the core. So that's why it's called a spiral. Hello. These two big arms, one coming from each end of the core, two big arms, one is called Perseus, and the other one, like I said, is called the Scutum Centaurus. Now, of course, I've got to talk about these names. Perseus, of course, is a fantastic name. I love it. Scutum Centaurus is only half good. Centaurus is cool. Sputum, I don't know what that even means. Sputum, it kind of reminds me of sputum, which is really nasty. Or, Or even worse, it reminds me of scrotum, and I'll say no more about that. Those are two of the four primary arms, but they, those two, are the, the most clearly visible. They are the ones that really stand out. The other two of the major arms are, they're just as long, but they, um, they're just not nearly as, uh, as prominent or bright because they just don't have as many stars in them. They are called the Sag- Sagittarius Carina arm, and then the other name is the Outer Arms, which is kind of uh, unimaginative. Um, so those are the four arms. All right, Bob, scutum is Latin for the word shield. And okay. It can specifically refer to an elongated oval or semi-oval rectangular shield. So it probably relates somewhat to the shape of the arm, I guess, or or something that it's in. Okay, I mean that's fine. Still I don't like it. Um so I know your next I know what your next question is. So where are we in that in the scheme of things? Unfortunately, I have to say we're not in any of the arms that I've mentioned. None of none of the four primary arms were just not in them. Uh we are that means of course far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. Of course, I had to say that D- Douglas Adams quote. Uh, it was just too perfect. Mm-hmm. So fortunate, fortunately, where we are has a cool name. We are in the Orion Cygnus arm, um, or it's also called the Orion Spur. This is a tiny minor arm between the Perseus arm and the Sagittarius Carina arm. All right, Jay, get us caught up on who's that noisy. Of course I will. Last week... I played this noisy. Really powerful. It does something. It's, there's something going on there because we're not naturally inside. You know, our our tissues are salty. Mm-hmm. We're not naturally like a river. You know, our tissues are salty. Therefore, we have to have salt in our diet to hold that juice on. And that's why in a desert climate, it's more important to have salt because you can get your body is like wanting to evaporate up into the heavens. 
So therefore, you need more salt to hold the, everything onto the earth. The reason why the oceans are salty is that's what's needed to hold the, the water onto the earth. If that didn't happen, the water would levitate right off the earth. That would be the end of it. But the salt holds it on in the same way it holds it into our body. Ouch. What do you think about that, George? Yeah, who is that? I, I know who that is. Yeah, I've, I've seen that uh, that video. Yeah. Right. And it's, yeah. and it's the amount of followers that this person has throughout yeah. social media uh, Ooh, makes me want to actually Getting stand on Neptune. Yeah, right. right. And, so, and, and, and breathe in the, the, the methane or whatever that's there. Yeah, yeah. That is David Avocado Wolf, or Avocado, right? Uh, this guy, wow, first of all, I was very, I made a lot of our listeners very happy because a lot of people knew this one and wrote in very enthusiastically, putting this guy down in their own particular way. It was very entertaining. Uh, Tyler Brown guessed first. He said, hey, rogues, the idiot mentioned in February 27th, 2016, who's that noisy is David Avocado Wolf, the quintessential nutter. Um, quintessential? Yeah, quintessential, that was the best one. So um, this guy, what with the alien, first, I think the best way to describe him is he's an egomaniac because if you read about him, just read the way he describes himself on his website, he considers himself – uh, he compares himself to Indiana Jones and a lot of other amazing people. Yeah, but just just the fourth movie. He says he's a rock star of a rock star of superfoods and, and longevity universe, covering health, beauty, herbalism, nutrition, and chocolate for some reason. Okay, so this week's noisy is. So, guys, this one's kind of tricky. It almost is a trick in and of itself. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, go with your gut. That's my hint for this week. Go with your gut. What is that? Write to me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org with your answer and any cool sounds that you heard this week. Good luck. All right. Thanks, Jake. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is going green. These are all items about whether or not a certain technology is actually green. Is it environmentally advantageous or not? <laughs> okay. You get it? Okay. Got right. it. Should Green be fun. It. Should be fun. Here we go. Ready? Item number one, a 2015 review of life cycle assessments of electric vehicles shows that overall they reduce greenhouse gas emissions compared to gasoline vehicles. Item number two, a recent analysis finds that adoption of LED lights has led to a backfire effect in which total energy expenditure increases due to increased use of lighting. And item number three, a 2010 USDA report concludes that corn ethanol produces 2.3 BTUs of energy for every one BTU of energy used in production. Oof. George, why don't you go first? 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> Ethanol produces two for one. Is that, is that what you're saying? I would say that the car, the electric car, the electric vehicle one is real. I would say because uh, that just seems to make sense. And the fact that they're still being produced and being produced more and more, I think that makes sense. The LED, the second one, I'll get back to that. The ethanol, I think, also is true, although I'm a little bit mm, skeptical in terms of the two-to-one ratio the BTUs for every BTU produced. But I could, I could see it's not that's not a great ratio, but it's okay. I I highly, highly, highly doubt that the LEDs are causing an uptick in energy use because their output is so low comparatively to traditional filaments and stuff. Unless, like, we're talking about the fact that like T-shirts now have LEDs in them and stuff like that. So I'm going to say that the LED, the backfire of LED lights, is the is the fiction. Okay, Bob. Um, the electric vehicles. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one because I've, electric vehicles are all about batteries and how those batteries are created. Um, I've, I remember years ago reading that, you know, you've got to really think about how they're done and it could actually, you know, be, uh, you know, a wash or a net loss because, you know, because of the, their production. Um, although I haven't really read anything about that in a long time. Third, the BTUs, the, uh, yeah, the BTU one kind of makes sense. Corn is incredibly energy dense. I mean, it's just the, the amount, you know, of biomass that's, that's created with corn, I, I know is really, really high. So that kind of makes sense to me. The, but like George, I'm going to do a BWG, uh, or GWG. Uh, this one rubs me the wrong way. Um, I mean, LEDs, you know, they use a lot, a lot less power. They, I, I just don't know why they would be on, you know, for longer because it's not like, oh, I'll leave my lights on. They're just LEDs. I, mean, I don't think that really people think that way. Um, so for that and maybe a couple other reasons, I'm going to say that the LEDs are fiction. Okay. Jay. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, um, I'm agreeing with Bob and George about the LED. You know, I'm just doing a quick assessment of my personal life and I'm not using more lights now because I use LEDs. And then I'm thinking, well, where else would they be using LEDs today that they wouldn't be using regular traditional lighting? And I can't really think of anything obvious. So I'm going to say that this one is the fiction. Alrighty. And Evan. I have my issues with all three of these is my problem. Well, you have a problem with me, George and Bob. Mm, Yes. And these three quests and these three, that's another story. And these three <clears throat> facts that have been presented to me. Think about the electric vehicles. Bob mentioned the battery production. I, I, I understand that one as well. Also, if you're going to get your electricity from, well, you know, electrical suppliers, how, where do they get it from? I mean, they, it's coal. I mean, doesn't coal, f- the majority of electrical production in, in the company, maybe not the majority, but certainly it's got a huge share of it. And that, is uh is a huge problem. So um, it's either the cars. I don't know if it's the LED lights backfire effect. I just redid my house and put in a hundred LED fixtures, uh, in recessed in, in into the ceiling. And so I trying to do a quick computation in my head about that, like how how energy efficient did, did I really become in 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 doing this and going this route? Oh gosh! And then the uh, and I've also heard. Uh, mixed results about the um, uh, ethanol as well. So I'm stuck here. I'll say, eh, I'll be politically incorrect and say it's the uh, electric vehicles one. I'll say that one's the fiction. 
Okay, so you all agree with the third one, so I'll start there. A 2010 USDA report concludes that corn ethanol produces 2.3 BTUs of energy for every 1 BTU of energy used in production. You all think that one is science. Before I give you the answer, let me say that these are all highly complicated and controversial questions. So when one or all of us or three of us lose, we shouldn't feel too bad? You shouldn't feel too bad. <laughs> okay. But that's now. why I had to mention specific studies because, you know, the, this uh, is not yeah. necessarily the definitive yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. In 2010, the USDA did say this. This is science. It okay. doesn't mean that this is the definitive answer to this question. Yeah. So – let me give you a little bit of background on the whole topic, right? First of all, I'm in the first the first one we mentioned a life cycle assessment. What that means is that trying to figure out what the inputs and outputs are, the total carbon footprint, etc., from soup to nuts, from the raw material mm, producing soup. it, its use, its recycling, its end of its life, and all of the effects it has on the market, and that's where things really uh. get crazy. Right. So the thing is you can come up with almost any answer you want, and people do. And then people argue about – economists argue about it, whatever, technologists, about what the actual net effect on the civilization is of this technology or that technology. And it's crazy complicated. But let's just talk about corn ethanol. So this is producing ethanol from corn. You could also produce it from uh, the leftover products of corn like the cobs and whatnot. Or you can use it from things like switchgrass or from sugarcane. And of course, researchers are trying to research what's the best plant or algae or whatever to make biofuel out of. And I know what it is. What's that? Sorghum. 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 Sorghum with the name. <laughs> so, however, the 2010 USDA report, some people think is a little generous. But here's the thing over, and I've read that too, Bob. I mean, six, seven years ago, I read that it was almost one to one. Yeah. That you were barely getting anything out of it. But it has been improving over time because the whole process is getting more efficient. And, and also farming is getting more efficient. Uh, we're getting more productive. Uh, so in any case, two to one or so is, kind of where we are. And, I, and I've read some reviews that said, yeah, 20 years ago, it was a net loss. 10 years ago, it was closer to the line. Now it's a clear advantage. So biofuels have essentially come into their own because of improvements in efficiency. Again, you could argue about that 2.3 to 1 ratio, but it's, you know, this consensus seems to be that recently it is a net producer of energy. However, however. Uh-oh. We should thank Borlaug for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> the question remains, how do you calculate land usage? Oh, yeah. Does sure. this – yes. What What is the net Opportunity effect? cost. The opportunity cost, the land cost of, just, of, of having more farmland mm-hmm. that could otherwise be meadows for butterflies or forest for squirrels Aww. or whatever. You know what I'm saying? That it increases our net agricultural footprint on the planet and that's a, that's a different – that changes the equation. There are some people who think it's still not worth it because of of the land use that is required. But sure. it, but it, it is a net producer of energy. That 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 seems to be pretty clear right now. But interest. I love how complicated these questions are. Okay, let's go back to number one. You would. 
A 2015 review of life cycle assessments of electric vehicles shows that overall they reduce greenhouse gas emissions compared to gasoline vehicles. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is... Say it. Science. Yeah, baby. Yeah. So this was complicated too. I had to read like a dozen articles to like really wrap my head around each one of these. It was – this is what I did today. The uh, But I said there was a 2015 review which which tried to come up with a consensus of all of the life cycle assessments, soup to nuts. If you you consider the production of the battery, the life cycle of the battery – the what you do with the you know the where the rare earths come from in the battery all those stuff and Evan you are correct you absolutely have to consider where you're getting your electricity from mm. so the actual answer depends on all of those variables and and there are different analyses that for everywhere from it's incredibly energy efficient to it's worse than an SUV depending on what what variables you plug into the evaluation. Hmm. But that's why it's kind of the uh, the on average it's got to be like an average of everything. So the vast majority uh of the energy, the total greenhouse gas footprint of uh, of the lifetime of a an electric vehicle and a gasoline car for that matter, any vehicle is its use. It's driving it around. It's burning energy to move it around. It completely dwarfs the energy involved in producing the vehicle or scrapping the vehicle at the other end. So the battery, I used to think that was a big deal. It's actually a tiny little thing. Wow. Even worse, it's even less than I thought because if you just consider the the carbon footprint of producing the vehicle, it's mostly the aluminum that goes into the frame. It's not even mostly the battery. Uh, Oh, wow. the battery is actually not that big a deal when you're talking about just the math of wh- where the carbon footprint is coming from. Now, since it's mostly the energy used by the vehicle, um, the most in-depth analysis, uh, what it does is it gives you a grid. It says, okay, there's different efficiencies of producing gasoline and there's different efficiencies of producing electricity and you get a grid of comparing the various efficiencies. And what you come up with is how many miles do you have to drive the electric vehicle before you recover the increased inputs in producing the electric vehicle? And that range, do you get that? that, yeah. Where's, that yeah. yeah. Where's the return on investment? Yeah. What, how many miles it, do you have to drive yeah, the damn thing? It, the uh, crossover point varies from a few thousand miles to about 100,000 miles. Depending on the exact comparison okay. that you're making, Shit. all well within the lifetime of a typical car, though. But it's all well within. So for yeah, most true. cars, average yeah. lifetime of a car is going to be like 160,000 miles, and about nine or whatever years, ten years, depending on who you read. But you know, so basically, they're cost effective. They are greenhouse gas effective, and it's only That's getting good. better. It's getting better as right. sure. as our electrical infrastructure gets more green. Electric vehicles get more green. So, it, it, yeah, if, if you live in a state where most of your electricity comes from coal, yeah, not so much. But that's why you got to take the average of every of every all the energy production in the U.S. and or whatever wherever you are. Uh, but as we are bringing more electricity into the grid, it, it's more green electricity. It's better. Our the overall footprint of you know per kilowatt hour, whatever of electricity is getting better. 
So so electric vehicles cool, are, that's good. Have, they've already crossed the line of being greenhouse gas emission efficient uh, or superior to gasoline vehicles and and that they're only going to get more and more advantageous. Nice. Yeah. And you take into consideration also that even gas vehicles have become more efficient. Yeah. Right. Zero, partial right. zero emission vehicles sure. and these sorts of things. So it's even surpassed those advancements as well. Right. Right, right. Okay. All of that means that a recent analysis finds that adoption of LED lights has led to a backfire effect in which total energy expenditure increases due to increased use of lighting is the fiction. However, Yay! not nearly as much as you think. Yeah. Not nearly as much as you think. In fact, you could find a source that says that is true, but that is not the consensus. Hmm. There is what's called a rebound effect. Rebound effect just means that some of the advantage of of increased energy efficiency, producing more light with less energy, and LEDs are massively more efficient than incandescent bulbs. Uh, They have about a 600% increase in efficiency over incandescent bulbs. So – uh, however, if you look at it, there's one paper very interesting did a historical analysis where they looked at the amount of energy the world spends on lighting and how that has changed over the last 200 years. And it's actually been steadily increasing despite the fact that the efficiency of generating lighting has been improving. So our demand for light is an insatiable sort of appetite. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. And the, the, the way they frame that is, have we saturated our demand for light or is it still a bottomless pit that we will continue to fill as we are able to generate more light? Remember, right. guys, remember, we're not just talking about industrialized nations. We're also talking about – you know, in nations that are not fully developed and they, they have a massive increase, uh, they have a massive demand for increased lighting. Sure. Um, uh. but what the studies show is that there's many effects here. So guys, people do keep their lights on longer when they are, when they are thinking that they are more energy efficient. They are wow. less obsessive about turning off the lights. Yeah. Yeah. People do use more lights. They light. They, they will increase the overall brightness of rooms they want to be bright. And people use I them did. in more stuff. People are doing more things with lights that they would not do if they T-shirts. didn't have. Yeah. They, they, they're, people are lighting T-shirts. <laughs> got to count all that. There's electronic devices. There's all kinds of ways to use lighting that you wouldn't do without the efficiency of LED lights. So it's – and it's not just LEDs. It's all, every advancement in lighting efficiency – has also corresponded to this rebound effect. But the rebound effect doesn't become a backfire effect until it actually leads to it costing more energy. And that's what's not happening. Because you would need mm. basically – That's good. Like we would have to increase our use of lighting sixfold in order to have a backfire oh. effect for LEDs. And that's right. just not happening. I mean I, 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 from, again, I had to read a dozen articles to sort of get the consensus and – there, there doesn't appear to be any evidence for a backfire effect, but definitely there's some extent of a rebound effect. And what some people were saying is that if you read some analyses, they ignore the rebound effect and they calculate like, okay, if we have to offset carbon production, what is going to be the effect of LED lights? And they only include the improved efficiency. But if you don't include the rebound effect, you're not your calculations are not going to be accurate. And so what they were saying is basically – Everything that we're doing to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions is not as efficient. It's not as effective as we think it is 
because right. because there's a there's a the rebound effect takes away 30 40 50% you know of the increased efficiency and so it you don't get as much of a net benefit out of it as you think you might there was a book that's, I read a couple years sucks. ago called Traffic that talks about mm-hmm. talked about just you know building roads and, and basically how how the the planet drives yeah what's involved and one of the things that that you know the the concept is that oh if there were more roads there'd be less traffic and it's not true at all it's when there's more roads people realize they can use these roads more and so the traffic level stays at a certain consistent rate oh my god yeah. so it's the same with lights like just what you were explaining like you know people there there is this sort of bottomless well of i mean drive by any you know i do a lot of driving at 2 3 in the morning sometimes coming home from gigs and i'll i'll drive by a mall that 20 years ago when i was first starting out wouldn't have been lit up and now it's all lit like 24 hours a day every every sign is lit there you go you know uh for advertising or for whatever it is even though it's 3 in the morning you know it's yeah it's amazing that the need is found if it can be filled so yeah, that, but, but I'm I'm happy that it hasn't. It's not a backfire yet, but uh, that wouldn't be impossible, right? No, it's not as implausible as you'd think, you know. Because yeah, yeah. Of, that's a great example. Yeah, the, okay, yeah, we could afford to to light our yeah. Think about billboards. Billboards used to be right paper. Now they're LEDs. They're giant that's LEDs. Right. Oh my god! Right. Yeah. Think about light all the, pollution. Sure. Are. Yeah. Think about all the things that well, we're doing with it yeah. now because it's actually cost effective. But that. The, but we're, we're willing to spend our whatever X percent of our of our resources on lighting, and we're just getting more lighting for the same resources. But we're still feel, filling that. If you take the historical view, it it sounds like we're just we're just filling that void. It's like filling your hard drive. You know, you get a ten times bigger hard drive than your last computer, and you fill it to the same degree. Yeah. Our use expands to the resource. You know that that's typical. And the, the yeah, I read a good article called uh, like "There Is No Green Product." You know, there is no such thing as a green product. Basically, going over all of these effects, all of these rebound backfire effects, uh, saying that like ride sharing, like which is like car renting. You know, yeah, a service where you don't own a car, but you uh, have a car sharing service, and that people in cities are using this. Uh, and they did an analysis, and they found that yeah, a lot of people who were not driving before are now driving. Right. Um, right. So it's not just that people yeah. who were driving are now sharing instead of owning. Some people are doing that. Then you have to count well, how much are people driving? You know, how is this affecting their driving pattern? And it turns out that there's actually a little bit of a of a net advantage to the driving sharing uh, uh, service, but not nearly as much as was advertised. It's. Uh, you know, basically for every car on the service, you save half a car of, in terms of somebody owning a car, um, which is not what, what they, what the company claimed is that it takes 17 cars off the road. Nope. Actually, it takes half a car off the road. Still, <laughs> wow. still, still an advantage. Close. Still, right. Still an advantage, but not nearly as much as the naive just looking at it straight up would tell you. You have to look at the life cycle, right? You have to look at how people are actually using it and how it's affecting their overall use because, because the psychology comes into play. There's no way they would sell that that way too. If they said, "Hey, you're going to save half a car," like yeah, people would yeah, be like, yeah. "Forget it. What's the point?" Yeah, right. but if they say right, 17, right. then it's like, "Yeah, oh, I'm doing good." Wow, that's amazing. 
Right. Yeah, talk about recycling the same way. We've talked about that on the show before. Mm-hmm. Recycling is yeah. not a no-brainer, but it is advantageous, but not again, it's right. not never it's never as good as you think it is. It's when you when you look when you do the entire soup to nuts cost of everything and how it affects behavior. Well, look at every every time saving device that's ever been invented has not really saved time because that time that you save, you, you don't end up doing nothing. You fill it with something else, and the expectations lower or or rise, however you want to look at it. That now you have more time to do that second or third or fifth thing, so you're still just as busy. You're just doing more stuff. Yeah, and the expectations they, are yeah, different. Uh, people made that point as well that you you can't look at this as. A reduction in the use of resources. You look at it as an improvement in the amount of stuff we're getting out of the resources that we're using. Yeah, and that our, of resources. Yeah, our Which use of nice. resources is pretty static because we just again we fill to meet the the, the space. Yeah, right. But we're getting more out of it. We're getting more lighting for our money. You know, we get to light more stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. Whatever, and that's fine. You know, that's that's one of the ways in which our civilization improves and advances. Right. Uh, right. So it's a very, photon uh, birth explosion. Yay, photons. <laughs> Evan, take us home with a quote. Here we go. Science and everyday life cannot and should not be separated. Here, here. Uh, very when You know, in just a more than a handful of words, really put a nice succinct point onto it. Uh, Rosalind Franklin. Yes, one of our yeah, yeah, baby, that's DNA, right. nice. DNA. Rosalind hey, Avocado. Not so, hey, yes. not so forgotten superhero of science here on the Skeptics Guide. English chemist, X-ray Yay. crystallographer, made contributions to the understanding of the molecular structures of DNA, RNA, viruses, coal, and graphite. And totally got totally ripped off. Got ripped off. Yep. Yeah. But but you know. When you are asked, you know, who's the female scientist that you know, you don't have to just say Marie Curie. If you've been, you can say Rosalind Franklin. Franklin. Yes. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Evan. George, always a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. We'll see you soon, George. Can't wait. Usually it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see you at Nexus. I mean, I hope we're going to see you before Nexus. We have actually- Got to work on the extravaganza to make it even more. Oh, yeah. Awesome. We should probably talk about that, right? Oh, it's not a new prop <laughs> thing? Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll bring it. No, it's going to be great. Thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Doctor. Sure, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Thank you.